That's Enough Out of You podcast is sponsored by Todd John's Law. Unfortunately, bad things happen to good people, whether it's the result of an auto accident caused by the carelessness of another driver or being charged with a crime. Dealing with the aftermath of a personal injury accident or being involved with the criminal justice system can be extremely difficult. That's why, whatever you're facing, you should never go it alone. You need an experienced attorney who will stand by you every step of the way. Todd is experienced, licensed, trusted, respected, and guaranteed. No one will work harder or more diligently on your behalf, and he will personally handle your case from beginning to end. Located on Drinker Street in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, Todd has been representing the legal rights of Scranton and Wilkesbury personal injury victims and those accused of a crime for over 20 years. At Todd John's Law, the utmost priority is ensuring that your rights are always protected and that your case is resolved as quickly and fairly as possible so that you can move on with your life. Call Todd John's Law at 570-876-6903. With Todd John's Law, you will receive equal justice under the law. All right, welcome to That's Enough Out of You. I am your host, Bill Rader. And joining me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Kane. Sean, what's going on? Billy Raids, how you doing, buddy? I'm excited for this episode, pal. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be fun. Um, we have a great guest with us today. Uh, it is Mark Brennan, and he is uh, he's a professor at Penn State, and he is the author of a book entitled Inba, the Empathy Book for Ireland, which uh, he wrote with Killian Murphy, um, which is pretty impressive. If you if you know who Killian Murphy is, he's uh, He's the star. Peaky Blinders, uh, Oppenheimer, and don't forget, he was also the Scarecrow in the in the Nolan Batman, Batman trilogy. Right, that's right. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, Peaky Blinders was was a great series. So, Sean, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mark, and then we'll we'll introduce him and, and uh, get started. Well, Mark is a longtime friend, but he's also a professor in of uh, and the UNESCO chair in the Community Leadership and Youth Development at Penn State University. Director of Graduate Studies, Education, Development, and Community Engagement. Co-founder of the Global Network, the UNESCO Chairs on Children, Youth, and Communities. His work has involved extensive research throughout Ireland, uh, throughout the U.S., Europe, Africa, Asia, and Central and South America. I mean, that's an impressive resume. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thanks for having me. And Bill, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. All right, Sean, where do you want to start? There's so much well, to talk about. Yeah, we got a lot to cover. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna involve uh, get deep into the troubles there in the north of Ireland. But Mark, let's start. Just uh, tell us a little about a little bit about yourself, how you got started in this, and uh, if you want to discuss a little bit about the UNESCO chair, and then we'll get into the specifics of the book. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. Um, yeah, and it's great again to connect with you, Sean. We're we're old friends. Um, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I got, I've got involved. Uh, it's probably been 20, 25 years. Um, I've been doing work in Ireland, doing work elsewhere. Um, uh, a lot of it's been around community organizing and, and community development and how you get people involved and how you do everything from get them to protest to get them to uh, to vote to everything else. And uh, that's, you know, that's a lot of what I've been doing. That's a lot of the, the, the research and practice work I do, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
but then maybe the last, um, oh God, how long it's been now? Um, at least the last 20 years, I've been doing a lot of work with the University of Galway. And um, um, about 12 years ago, they got a UNESCO chair from, uh, an appointment from UNESCO. And the, the chairs are designed to be uh, kind of think tanks for the UN. Uh, they're designed to be, you know, people that are doing on the ground research and on the ground programs and, and funnel that into the UN so that, you know, best practices can get used. So there's a, a really, really good and dear friend, uh, Pat Dolan, who's a UNESCO chair in Ireland. And uh, um, we worked together for ages and he was approached by UNESCO to get a chair. And then uh, for our work, they came to me uh, about four or five years later. And uh, yeah, so we do all sorts of stuff. We've been doing, well, and again, my, you know, like I said, my background's kind of community. His, his background is, is youth, children and youth. Um, and I'm always looking to see who's missing from the table whenever we're, we're organizing, we're doing whatever else. And uh, young people are always a big missing piece of that. Um, so the work we've been doing with the UN and others is, is really focused on that. How do you get them engaged and involved? And uh, I guess the last thing I'll say was the really, really impressive but scary thing too is that um, we don't think of the world as being as young as it is, but half the planet's under 25. Um, so this is, you know, not only are they historically the ones who've been the change makers and doing good things, um, you know, they're the ones we got to engage. Right. All the things they're doing. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, what I do, and we do everything from research to projects to teaching to setting up programs to helping the UN and others with policy, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's great work you're doing, Mark. And you know, let, let's just get into a little bit in the north of Ireland. And uh, yeah. I wanted to start with a story. Um, over the summer, uh, me and my brother and his wife and my mom we were sitting at a restaurant in Tunkhannock, and all of a sudden, these two SUVs pull up, and who gets out but Bill and Hillary Clinton? And so, of course, me and my brother go up to them, just like normal people. They're talking to everybody on the street. Of course, they have, you know, Secret Service security with them. But my brother says to former President Clinton, he says, you know, thanks for all that you did in Ireland, you know, with helping with the peace process there and everything. And all of a sudden, Clinton just starts talking to me and Jamie like we're just three guys on the street. And we had like a good 10-minute conversation. And, of course, his wife videotaped it. So it's up on our website now. But one of the things that, that President Clinton said that was interesting, he said that when they set up the peace process years ago, they set it up to protect the minorities then and the minorities now because he knew that the demographics were going to change because if you looked at you know the Irish Catholic Republican community, they were having four or five kids in a family where the Protestant, British Protestant uh, unionists were maybe were only having one kid. So they figured down the road the demographics were going to change. So my question to you now is if there was a consensus now and a population check and it was a legitimate check, do you think the Irish Catholic community would outpopulate the, the British uh, Protestants in the north of Ireland? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think the demographics actually are at the point now where it's it's slightly higher. Um, it's, it's at least 50-50, but I think it's slightly higher now with um, uh, right. Catholic nationalists versus British unionists. The other part of it, too, is, you know, um, it's the demographic thing, but but the other part is, uh, um, you know, big trend among among the, the unionist loyalist uh, community. Um, a lot of the young people don't stay there; they go off to England or the continent or elsewhere. Right. So it's sort of like a double effect of, of demographics. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably about fifty fifty now, maybe maybe a slightly bit more. Um, and that yeah, and that, that's absolutely right with Clinton. I mean that that trend has been going for a long time, and uh, I think as people looked at it over the years. Um, God, I remember 20 years ago, even when, the, even longer when the troubles were still going on, um, right. they were saying all this was, all this would be decided not by 
you know, paramilitaries, not by politics, not by anything else, just just by pure birth rate demographics. Sure. Yeah. Well, before we get into, you know, more on North, North of Ireland, I, I really yeah. want to get into it. But let's talk about your book, Mark. Yeah. Um, first of all, talk about Killian Murphy. What's what's he like? What's Killian like? Killian's a, a lovely, lovely person. Great, great, uh, great friend, great colleague. Um, you know, I mentioned the UNESCO Center in uh, in Galway, and uh, probably about ten or twelve years ago, um, again Pat Dolan, the the, the chair there, uh, was at a, um, a celebration for the the Druid Theatre in Galway. It's one of the oldest uh, kind of active theatre companies uh, in Ireland, and uh, Killian kind of got to start there, so he was there for it. Um, this, this would have been before Peaky Blinders and stuff, but he was certainly well known and everything, and uh, and they hit it off dramatically, you know, and. Uh, um, and then his idea, Killian's idea was, you know, this, this is about youth empowerment. This is about youth voice. Uh, this is about, you know, sustainability in lots of ways. If we're going to have strong communities, you know, we can't just treat young people like adults in waiting and um, that kind of stuff. We got to prepare them now. So they, you know, magic doesn't happen when they turn 18 or 21 and they have to figure out how to be involved and active. We need to start doing it early. So, you know, he was, he was really engaged in a lot of ways with that. Um, and uh, some of the early things we did, we've been doing some work where we um, we train young people to be researchers. And that may sound boring, but it's actually them uh, with complete autonomy to do whatever they want, um, to tell us the stories and the problems of their home places and uh, and how to fix those. And more often than not, there are things that I would miss, there are things that policymakers would, would miss, uh, certainly things older adults would miss. And, uh, and at the end of doing these projects, instead of doing boring research articles that no one ever reads, um, they do as they do, you know, YouTube videos or podcasts or infographics, and uh, Killian narrates those um, for us. Um, he, he's just been a tremendous advocate for uh, for the work we do, for all that stuff. And um, it's probably about six or seven years ago we started really kind of focusing on the area of empathy. And you know, again, empathy's I'm not talking about giving out hugs and kisses. I'm not talking about touchy feely. It's this is a, a core social emotional learning skill we need. Um, the better leaders we have have lots of it. Um, you know, you mentioned Clinton and others. Um, there's a perfect example, their ability to connect with people and understand people. Um, don't have to like them or love them. The idea is that you can connect with them and understand them. That's a tremendous right. skill. So we um, we did that over the years, developed a program and everything else. Um, that's been one of the big things that, that among others, that, that Killian really got into. And it's just been a major advocate for it. Um, and what we thought along the way was, you know, I was kind of going by sort of like the, you know, the live aid or do they know it's Christmas or real world idea or whatever else. So, you know, right. our idea was we were sitting around and said, uh, you know, it'd be cool to have something tangible to show people what empathy is. Um, it's a real abstract thing when you start mentioning it to people. And uh, sure. we, we thought maybe it could be a little bit of a fundraiser for the program. Maybe it could be, you know, just something you can hand to people and say, here, this is what we're talking about. So, you know, we we started shaking the bushes. And, you know, in the book, we had all kinds of, People from celebs to to local kids with Down syndrome to cab drivers to you know to guards. I mean, it was across the entire Irish spectrum of people, and and he was just a you know a driving force behind it. Uh, as soon as we kind of sat down and figured out what it was going to look like, um, he was he was as hands on as the rest of us. But um, long story short, he's just just a um, what you see is what you get. Was just a lovely, lovely, sincere person. Um, nice. No no ego no. Um, crazy behavior no nothing he's just a uh just a good guy just a, wow you know, 
Can't say much more than that. I mean, he's, he's obviously incredibly talented and accomplished. Yeah, definitely. Stuff, but I like very, he's very chill, very, very sincere and, and very, uh, you know, word is his bond, just a nice, nice guy. Kind of like we don't like. So, yeah. Well, Mark, congratulations on the book because I read the book and it's tremendous. It's it's ah. really a breakdown of eighty essays um, on, on empathy, and it's it's just really tremendous. And uh, before we get into some of those essays, um, could you talk about the three types of empathy? Yeah, and, and depending on who you talk to, there's you know there's there's a couple different types. But I even I even condense it down further into two. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about. Um, kind of cognitive empathy, which is where I can just understand where you're coming from and that sort of thing. Um, but through a lot of our work, what we want to do is get into activated empathy. And that's, you know, that's when you stand up for somebody who's being bullied. That's when you stand up and, um, you know, clear the lane for people that need help. Um, right. that kind of stuff. And again, this isn't, you know, this isn't sympathy. This isn't me feeling bad for you. This is just me understanding where you're coming from and, right. and doing what I can do as a, as a good citizen, as a good, you know, fellow human being. Um, and those are kind of the two big ones I kind of focus on. Um, but there are other, other kind of strands of it that we can look at. There's ways that, that people exhibit it in different ways. Um, you know, some of the research we've done, you know, you know, uh, women exhibit it, girls and women exhibit it in a very different way than, than men and boys. Uh, we're kind of taught to be tough and everything else. And we find weird ways to exhibit empathy that might not be on the radar, but they are. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of strands to it, all kinds of aspects to it. But the, the, for me, the big ones there is just understanding it and practicing it. Um, and it's it's weird too, like, you know, as we were setting up these programs, uh, or this program, Sympathy Education Program, um, you know, we did what all good program developers do. We, we looked around to see who else was doing it and try to see what we could steal. And uh, funny thing, we found four programs worldwide that teach empathy, four programs worldwide. And one of them was, um, just not so good, just to be blunt. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of touchy-feely sort of stuff. One was um, was linked to uh, a religious organizations, so it was kind of like a religious sort of indoctrination thing. And then there was two others, and they were they were geared towards kindergarten kids. That was it. Wow. And it's sort of the idea that you know three of us we're we're just great lads, and and that's the way it is. And then there's bad people out there that aren't like us, and uh, not the case at all. And uh, the other cool stuff we've seen with the, with the work is that, you know, empathy isn't something you're born with. It's something that grows and shrinks over time. There's actually a part of your brain that, like any other muscle, that grows and shrinks. You can reinvest in it. You can rebuild it. Um, mm -hmm. But the key thing is 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 using it in practice, and that's um, that's cool, you know. Well, Mark, how do you how do you explain empathy for to people, let's say in the United States, who who maybe they're not exposed to you know, the oppression that uh, the Catholic community experienced in the north of Ireland, or say even the, the Palestinians are experiencing in Israel. How do you explain that to, say, an average American who, who doesn't understand what's really going on in those situations, and, and maybe they, they can't even begin to empathize because they just don't have an understanding of what's going on over there? How do you explain that to them? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of always like to tell people that, you know, the the developing world and the conflict world exists right right alongside us. Um, you know, you can see tremendous oppression, tremendous poverty, everything else in, in rural Pennsylvania. You don't got to go to the other side of the planet. That's and, true. Uh, you know, I mean, and, it is, and you can see it in, you know, one side of Scranton compared to the other. You can yeah. see it in Scranton, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think just even, even more so just being aware, 
just keeping your eyes open and trying to understand that, you know, we're real quick to cast judgment. We're real quick to, um, you know, point to people and decide why they're in a certain situation. And I think it's, it's really important for us to, you know, step back, kind of put ourselves in their shoes. You know, what's it, what's it like to be in that setting? What, what got them there? What could have possibly happened to be there? Um, you know, what can we do to help them get out of it or, or them to move on? Um, you know, I think the same as you start looking at, at places throughout the world and obviously, you know, you know, Palestine, the Ireland you mentioned, um, you know, doing work in Africa. South Africa, other places. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's no shortage of places to, no. to do this. And I think we, you know, we're kind of good at putting things out of sight, out of mind. And uh, I think our ability to kind of take some deep thinking and think about, okay, this, you know, for, you know, for, for not want of a miracle, that could be me. I could be in, sure. I could have been born in one of these places and that sort of thing. And to try and understand it. And I think too, you know, with, with places like this, you know, I, I think empathy is even more important trying to figure out both sides of the issue. Um, you know, right. how, do, how do you, you know, how do you understand somebody that you see as being on the, the opposite side or whatever side you're right. on? Um, how do you, how do you do that? And I think, you know, as you, you know, as we were talking about the, the troubles and other things, um, you know, during the peace process, that was one of the key things that, you know, George Mitchell and others did, was was trying to build that empathy um, right. between people and uh, well, you know, Mark, how do you do that? How do you do that with the hardliners? Say the hardliners on either side have been, you know, they've been in war torn countries yeah, yeah. for for so long. How do you get through to the, the people? Well, I think I think there's a couple things. I mean, I think I think first of all, things that just kind of reinforce our common, you know, common humanity. And I don't mean that as some touchy feely academic type thing. Um, you know, I think of during the peace process, George Mitchell. And, you know, the, and you know the story, Sean, but the, the deal was all these people that have been fighting each other for 40, 50, however yeah. long before, right. um, the one deal was they all had to have dinner together. And the only rule was they couldn't talk politics. So all of a sudden you had people like, you know, Paisley and McGinnis, who, you know, probably didn't like each other too much before then. No. Started talking about, you know, within, you know, no time, everybody's talking the same story. You know, my kids are spending all my money, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I hear you like to go fishing. Where do you go? Oh, really? I did that. Yeah. What kind of, you know. It's a lot harder to, to hate each other when you can empathize a little bit. And, sure. and the more we can do, you know, just start sharing our stories. I mean, you know, with each other. We, we may hate each other's guts right now, but we find out, you know, here's the reason I'm so passionate. It's because, you know, my parents and grandparents took me to these places and we did these sort of things and our culture was so right. important. And, um, yeah. and again, you know, the key thing with empathy is, you know, we don't got to hug and sing kumbaya and all kinds of stuff at the end of it. Um, no, I just, I'm just, I just get it where you're from. You're not a monster anymore. I mean, I like you, but I understand where you're coming from. Right. And, and you know, we're trying to, you know, you, you can go to these war-torn places. We're trying to do it. You know, we've got a couple of projects right now. How do we, how do we do this in American society? You know, we're pretty divided. We're pretty distrustful of each other. We're pretty, you know, whatever. Um, Extremely divided right now. Oh, horribly so. Yeah. How, do, how do we get to the point where, you know, we can talk again? How, how do we realize we're just fighting over minutia? You know, we're not fighting over big issues. We're, well, let me ask you, let me switch yeah. gears for just a second. Can I, go, can I jump in, yeah. Sean? Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, just just to kind of relate this to to everyday life, uh, you know, as far as empathy goes, I I, I do um, uh, training for um, uh, for a health insurance company for our, our you know, our customer service representative. Mm -hmm. And we we did empathy training with them. Yeah. Um, it was actually created for us by a woman who um, was uh, was a, a customer who she was a um, a member and she lost her son 
And, you know, she um, she noticed that there were some some uh, representatives who were who were very good to her. And then there were some who, you know, treated her like, a you know, very in a very transactional manner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so she created this whole program and we used it and we trained our, our representatives. And, and um, you know, as you said, Mark, it's, it's such a an important part of of having empathy is being self-aware. And, you know, understanding that um, that you you're understanding your role in in the process of, of helping people. And, you know, the people that are calling our our company are a lot of times going through awful, awful situations with their health. And we have to kind of, as you said, put ourselves in their shoes, understand that if you just came from from a, a, an appointment with a doctor, and the doctor told you that you have six months to live, and now you've got to call your health insurance company and find out what your benefits are. Um, you know, you you don't want somebody to to cry, you know, and and have I mean necessarily have sympathy. I mean, obviously, a little bit of sympathy isn't bad, but empathy is is really the most important thing. You want somebody to be an advocate for you. You want somebody to, as you said, clear the way for you to you know to to get the things that you need. And that's really what a big part of that training was. And it was so important for us to, um, you know, to to explain that, to explain the difference between empathy and sympathy. Uh, so I, I just, you know, again, just to relate that to something that we we deal with every day, which is customer service. Sean and I constantly complain how customer service is, is dead in this country. But, it's you know, awful. I think if most... I think if a, if more people had that type of of experience, had that type of training, and understood what empathy is, I think it would be a lot different. No, you're absolutely right, and 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 it's brilliant you you point to that, Bill, because we're actually some of the the increasing number of calls we're getting for for empathy education is from the medical field and the law field, and you know I'm not talking trash on them. But you think about having the way I was trained, you know, as a doctor or as a surgeon, you know, empathy or sympathy was almost a liability. You had to go on to the next surgery and you could you had to have your head in the game completely. I'm sure. It's actually now it's it's believe it or not, like in the health and human development fields and stuff, there's actually research showing that like you know, patients with, with terminal outcomes, um, they actually have a better quality of life and uh, even a little bit more longevity. Um based on this, if doctors are, you know, more empathetic, if if the uh, the insurance folks, if caseworkers, everybody else. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, going crazy, you know, sitting there crying with you, but if they can just say, look at can't even understand what you're going through, but we're going to we're going to have you back as you get through it. Massively, massively important and uh, and big, big area. And uh, the other thing I, I would just mention too is, um, you know, when you actually look at sympathy. Sympathy is about us. You know, I show sympathy to you because you're going through something that makes me feel better. Right. You know, right. Empathy is about you and yeah. um, and that kind of thing. So no, you're absolutely just spot on with that. Yeah. Right, well, Sean, go ahead. Go. Yeah. You know, when we were talking, we we're talking about the divide in America, Mark, and, and right now it's so bad that, you know, if you're an actor or an athlete or a singer and you come out and you pick either political side, the other side basically trashes you and all of a sudden you can't act. I mean, that's how divided uh-huh. it is right now. It's so bad. And I look at it and I don't I don't see how we could ever bridge that divide. I think it's so divided right now. I I I mean, change my mind on this. How how do we do, do bridge that divide and, and and bring people together? Because it, it it's really bad right now. And I think it's, maybe it's just the hardliners on both sides, the, the extremists, but they're the loudest right now. And maybe that's the problem. 
Yeah, no, I think, I think you know, you're right. Now, I, I do think, you know, these things kind of come in waves a little bit, I think. And, you know, if you look back maybe 15 years ago, um, even 10 years ago, um, a lot of this, these things are the core focus of our divisions now. We're just sort of bubbling and there was nothing much to it, but but they, they got amplified through social media and all the ways we can communicate and everything else. Um, but I do think if you look at some of the, you know, the most vocal kind of extremes of the spectrum on both sides, um, you know, they tend to be older, they tend to be a lot of different things. Um, you know, keep in mind, like I was saying, we've got 50, 52% of the planet under 25. Um, right. Those of us over 25 are being rotated out quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, and hopefully a long time, but you know, um, a lot of young people just have no time for this stuff. They, right. um, and I think, I think that's going to be part of the game changer of it. I also think too, it's just, you know, I think we're, we're still coming to terms with like all our technology and everything else. Um, you know, it's so easy now just to self-select yourself into the smallest, tiniest box echo chamber. Um, Absolutely. You know, and that, that just reinforces everything. So I think, I think there's a need for lots of us. And like you guys, the work you're doing here is just brilliant. I think there's a need to, you know, get the different voices out there and say, yeah, it's wonderful if we don't agree on things. Cool. Um, but, you know, you're still okay. You're still part of the tribe. You're still part of whatever. And this is good. Um, right. Not everything's all or nothing. And I think we also kind of have to re, you know, kind of refocus the message that this isn't a, a zero sum game um, just because some people are, are, are advancing in life. Doesn't mean it's taking away from yours. And, uh, you know, and I think, I think young people are good at pointing that out as well, but I think, I think that's part of it. But I think it, it biggest thing for me, it comes down to, you know, kind of real substantive interaction with people. Um, it's way too easy to hate someone you've never met and you see on the other end of it. Right. Screen. Exactly. You know, yeah, and that's, social, that's, you know, yeah. Social media is such an influence on, on that right now. And it, it's so easy to, um, you know, to, to, criticize or or fight or you know get get uh, get nasty with somebody who you who you've never met who you never will see face to face um you know you're you're on your computer you're on your phone it's very easy to do that and i think we also we also tend to exaggerate what we see on social media you know we may see a a, a post and there may be three or four you know there may be hundreds of, of comments and we see three or four extreme you know views and and then we walk away and say, oh geez, you know, everybody's saying this now, and and it's it's just not the case. I think, like Sean said, that it's the it's the uh, you know the extreme views, the extremists right now who who are the loudest, and it's I, I think the silent majority are you know the folks that that are going to decide the things uh, that that happen in the future, but you know we we have to realize that we, you know, we have a lot more in common than, than we think. Mm -hmm. And the views of those, you know, those extreme folks are, don't necessarily represent everybody on that side. And I think the more we understand that, Hey, you know, I'm more like you than you think. And, and, you know, we can come together and we can, we can do what's best for this country um, because it, we're, you know, we really are in crisis mode right now. I feel like we're headed down, uh, just a, a terrible path, and and we really need to kind of take a step back, refocus, <clears throat> look at look around, and look to see you know who can we help, not who can we hate. Yeah, no, you're, absolutely, I agree completely. And and you know part of it too is like we gotta not be caught up in all these people we've never met and never will meet. And you know like you know whatever Trump, Biden, whoever you know 
says or does today. These are people I'm probably not, not ever going to meet. I'm not ever going to, you know, unless, unless I'm Sean Kane, because he hangs out with the Clintons and others. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the it's one of those things, like most of my life is probably the hundred people I encounter every day in my local community and everything else. And that's 99% of my existence. And to get caught up in all this craziness of people that I'm never going to know, never going to meet, never going to know. It's just, you know, it's, it's not good for me. Uh, so, yeah. So Mark, let's let's talk about some of the essays in the book, and let's start with yours because yours was fascinating. You called it <laughs> the empathy for the devil, and it was your experience with the nuns in school. <laughs> it was just fascinating read. Could you get into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. It was my uh, I don't know. That was my therapy session or something. I don't know. I uh, um, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up um, you know Catholic school, all that kind of stuff. Small town where where probably everything revolved around priests and nuns and that kind of stuff. And, yeah, same here. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't think I ever, I don't think we were ever on the same page. Um, and, um, you know, now when that went through school and everything was, was what it was, it was fine. But, you know, um, and uh, but I wasn't particularly fond of them. I wasn't particularly, you know, um, I saw them as kind of elitist. I saw them as kind of mean spirited. I saw them as other things. Um, probably some fault in my judgment as well. I'm not putting all on them. Um, but then um interesting thing happened is you know I, I got to work at a university where there were a lot of nuns. I, mean, I guess I was a, a glutton for punishment or something, but I one of the one of the first gigs I got was that. And um you know, I found out there was there was a lot much a lot deeper story to things. Um, you know, there were certain ones that were were everything that we should all aspire to be. They were truly godly inspired, whatever human beings. They were, you know, they were like Gandhi with habits. Uh, they were just, you know, um there were good people doing good things uh, for the sake of doing good things, uh, not because religion said to or anything else. And then there was a, the bigger chunk of them was kind of indifferent. And uh, um, and I remember them as being indifferent, even, you know, as a young person. I remember them being sort of distant and, um, you know, not necessarily sticking up for people, which is sort of there. Um, and then there was some that were just truly, you know, the devils. They were they were bad. Um bad eggs, they were damaged goods, they were whatever. And they, you know, much like we've seen in other settings, you know, priests and, and, and lots of other non-religious settings, um, people that like to torment children actually find a, you know, go out of their way to find a calling and find a place. And, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty, pretty bad. But actually, as I got working with, with someone, I, I ran into a few of the old ones. And, uh, um, you know, because we were in a, a small place and we're working together a lot, um, you know, some of the ones I would, I would encounter, you know, we'd have coffee together. Occasionally there'd be an event. And we'd have a glass of wine or a whiskey or something like that and start telling stories. And um, they told like, they told really different, um, not really different takes on things, but they, they provided a lot of depth and insight that I really never thought about. Like a lot of them, you know, didn't see an option when they were young. And this was like a thing that they would be, they would be, you know, applauded for. They were going into the, the convent and um, wasn't that great. And the families were proud and everything else. And uh, and then they got there and realized it wasn't what they thought. And they really thought, yeah, I'm a young person now. I really, yeah, technically I can get out, but if I do, it's shame on me and my family. You know, I just I'm 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 stuck. Um, other ones, you know, realized like that they thought getting into it would be, you know, an area where they could kind of make a difference. And I had one of them say to me, you know, and what I found when I was 22, she said. You know, I was I was sent to a kind of remote rural outpost and 
away from family and everything else. And then that was my life for five years. And that was really, really tough, you know, disheartening. Um, and then there was others, you know, um, that were LGBTQ plus. And back in the, you know, 60s, 70s, whenever, um, coming out wasn't like it is today. And even then this was safe haven. This was something where you could, you could go and, you know, join the nuns and all of a sudden no one was asking you why you were 25 and not married and why you, yeah. uh, you know, so um, there, there was just a lot of depth to it. And uh, I understood them a lot more once I actually took the active step to put myself in their shoes and figure out a little bit of what they're going on, what was going on with them. Um, you know, truth be told, when you, when you, when you consider all that, I don't know if I would have been much better than, and uh, that's, uh, I mean, that's what that stuff's about. And we will be right back. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Residence Inn by Marriott in Scranton. Discover comfort and convenience in Scranton. If you're planning a short or extended stay in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, Residence Inn by Marriott, located at 947 Viewmont Drive, will ensure your stay is nothing short of exceptional. Their friendly team is committed to providing you with top-notch service and a memorable experience. Whether you're in town for business, leisure, or a bit of both, Residence in Scranton has you covered. They offer free Wi-Fi, an indoor pool, meeting and event space, complimentary hot breakfast, a fitness center, and an on-site market. And Residence in Scranton is pet-friendly. You're home away from home. Residence in Scranton features spacious studio, one-bedroom, and two-bedroom suites, and all are complete with a fully equipped kitchen. There's a cozy fireplace lounge and an outdoor barbecue area. Call 570-343-5121 or go to Marriott.com for more information. Residence in Scranton, where hospitality meets home. That's Enough Out of You is also sponsored by Fairfield Inn by Marriott. Located at 949 Viewmont Drive in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Fairfield in Scranton exemplifies travel made easy. They offer stylish guest rooms with plush bedding, complimentary hot breakfast with healthy options, one of the area's premier hotel fitness centers, as well as nearby dining options. While you're staying at Fairfield Scranton, make sure you check out some local attractions like the Scranton Cultural Center, the Electric City Trolley Museum, Montage Mountain Resorts, and the Steamtown National Historic Site. Catch a Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins game or a concert at the Mohegan Sun Arena or take the historic Lackawanna Coal Mine Tour. Fairfield in Scranton is in the center of it all. Experience comfort and convenience in Scranton at the Fairfield Inn by Marriott. Call 570-343-5121 or go to Marriott.com for more information. Fairfield in Scranton, where hospitality meets home. Well, I can tell you, Mark, if I was going to write an essay for your book, and it would probably be cut out, but uh, nope, if I was going to write one, it would be it would be my my empathy for Yankee fans, because you know, and Billy knows <laughs> this, you know, as a diehard Red Sox fan, and Mark, you know this, I disdain Yankees and, and their fan base, and they crushed them <laughs> over the years. But, you know, the last six years, I've been helping to raise a kid who's like a son to me, who's a diehard Yankee fan. So I empathize now with the Yankee fans and, and the fact that he was born, you know, right after the Yankees won their last championship, he's never got to, to see in a world series. 
even mm-hmm. though they keep talking about 27 world titles and but he's never seen them so i empathize with that and if the yankees did win a world series you know it wouldn't affect me the way it would have say 15 20 years ago when i would have been you know me and billy probably wouldn't have talked for a week because he's a he's a yankee fan so i understand that and 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 bill what would you what would you write an essay on, on empathy for Oh, geez. Uh, put me on the spot, Sean. Um, well, we could come back to it, Billy. Yeah, let's, let's come back to it. Yeah. Mark, talk about some of the other essays in the book that intrigued you. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, you know, and Billy, my, you know, I, I I kind of struggled forever trying to figure out something to talk about. I mean, there was there was lots of people in my life that I think have been important and had turning points and stuff. But, you know, someone came back to the nuns when I, when push came to shove. But um, no, I mean, some of the other ones were. Oh my God! It was just um, some of them were, were just just amazing stories of people. Um, you know, and again, like I said, there's there's one one guy, Michael Karens, he has Down syndrome. He's about thirty. He lives in Galway. Uh, wrote a wonderful essay on what what it is. There was there were some people like um, had some mental health issues that wrote just beautiful things about how they've navigated their lives. Um, there's a great one by by a guy named Tyrion Henry. Um, his wife. Um, um, she passed away a couple of years ago, but he wrote this essay about her. Um, when she was like 16, um, she uh, um, went in the hospital with a stomach ache and they found out she had just massive amounts of cancer. And they took out half of her stomach, a lot, I mean, just crazy. And uh, the doctor said in the title of the, the book chapter and the doctor came from a doctor that said to her, when they discharge her, we just have no idea what's next. And instead of like having this kind of hanging over her head forever, um, she just went and lived life, you know, went on, got married, had kids, was incredibly active, was, was a force to be reckoned with, um, and lived a long, long life. And then, then before she had a recurrence and other things, but just beautiful story about her. Um, and Sean, a good story with it. And, and Billy, um, when she was in the hospital, when she was 16, the doctor said to her, Oh, Hey, you know, Bono's here. Do you want to, uh, have him come in and visit you? And she said, no, nah, actually, really, could you get David Coverdale or somebody else? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, oh, that's great. that was even more brilliant, I thought. Um, but no, there was them. There was, you know, um, you know, this, this colleague and dear friend of mine, Pat Dolan, he wrote about um, going to school with the, um, the Christian brothers. And, uh, you know, it, it also make, gives me no grounds whatsoever to talk about tough nuns. Um, you know, Christian brothers are a nasty bunch. Um, right. And a uh, very nasty bunch, evil bunch. Um, he wrote a wonderful essay about one of them that, that wasn't. Um, and uh, oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, there, there was, um, God, I think there were so many and they were all so good. Um, which one do you like, Sean? Well, yours was top of the list. Yours, <laughs> yours was tremendous. Uh, but there, there was just so many different ones. I mean, uh, you know, they, off the top of my head, I'm just trying to think. I mean, there was so many. You mentioned the Down syndrome. That that was tremendous. I mean, it was just you know, the Killing Murphy. His, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just so interesting to me to try to you know to to understand and empathize with something that you know is so opposite of what what I grew up with, or yeah. you know, and, and and you know, how do you how do you empathize with something that you know? is inherently evil though like how do you empathize with say you know the ku klux klan or the nazi party or something that you know is yeah. like how yeah no no I, you know again this isn't about liking them 
Right. You know, I've got to know how how Germany in a 20-year span got up to its neck in two world wars, how how normal people, and that's that's one of the things that all the, the evidence shows, um, all the normal people that did all the atrocities were normal people. They weren't psychopaths. You can't control psychopaths. You know, if I pick all the, the psychopaths that want to just kill, kill, kill and have my on my team, right. they're going to kill me. Um, I need people that, you know, are normal, logical people thinking they're doing what they're doing. And, and for me to understand that sort of thing, I mean, we're actually, it's funny you bring it up, but we're doing some work now with um, Lincoln Empathy Education with Holocaust Education. And um, I got to go to a tremendous honor. It was, it was massively deep and heavy uh, to go to Auschwitz this, this last fall and um, and look at things. And again, it was, it was incredibly, I want to know why normal, normal, not hateful or anything. Normal citizens were able to do something so horrible um, and how it was just so, in, you know, how routine it became and how, you know, institutionalized it became and how, you know, it wasn't even brainwashing. It was just, you know, it's different things. I mean, I, I want to understand that. I want to, I want to, if we're going to avoid that again, we got to under, understand what was the, the thing that pushed people over the edge. What was, what was the process that got them there? Right. These weren't, they did horrible, horrible things, but these weren't your your idea of evil. They, they did evil things, but I, I want to crack that nut. I want to figure out what was going on there. Um, so that's how I think. I, I don't feel for them. I don't don't uh, condone or acknowledge or or anything what they did. But I got to understand it, and actually, the understanding of it is it's is a lot more deeper than just saying, "Oh, they were bad people." Um, so that's I mean that's that's kind of how I I kind of approach it. Um, you know, and again, I'm not I'm not making the case for any of them. But if you look at right. other similar groups, um, you know, what, what what moves a young person? You know, I don't think we're born with any of this stuff. What moves them along the path that they join the clan or they join something else? What 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 right? What that doesn't happen naturally. There's a process, and we're gonna kind of cut down on that stuff. We're gonna try and eliminate sure. that sort of stuff. We got to figure it out. You know, getting back to to. Uh... You know, one of the essays that I really enjoyed in the in the book was it was Killian Murphy's. You know how he he talked about you know um, his job as an actor and you know as a, and as a father mm -hmm. and you know how acting basically is listening. Yeah, and I think that's a big you know that's a huge part of of being able to empathize if if you could just listen and just listen to the other side and then you you might have a better understanding of it. So that yeah. that essay I really enjoyed. Yeah, and I think he was really really spot on with that. And, you know, um, no matter how much we, we, we like to pretend I'm, I'm, trust me, I'm bad at it. Um, you know, we're not really present in the moment with things. I mean, look at the three of us here talking like we're old friends and everything else having a great time. But as I answer something, you're looking and saying, okay, what's the next question? As, you, as you're asking me something, I'm thinking, what's the next thing? I'm not, we're not listening to each other enough. We're not right. connected. Um, and Sean, just in the context thing, there's one other, one other essay that did pop into my head. Um, just to mention quick, it was by um, Alan and Elaine Smith. And uh, Alan was, uh, he just retired a couple of years ago. Uh, he was the uh, UNESCO chair in Derry, uh, outside of Derry. He lives in Belfast, grew up in Belfast. Um, uh, came from a very, very strong um, um, uh, unionist Protestant background. Um, you know, his, his, his grandfather, I think, was, was one of the key members of the Orange Order. And um, his wife came from Andersontown, which is where the, the neighborhood where Bobby Sands was from. And... Uh, the two of them walked into a coffee shop one day at Queens University and it was love at first sight. And wow. um, 
Yeah. And they, they first, you know, I said, no, come on, write something. It'll be great. You know? And at first they were like, Oh, you want some, some silly soppy nonsense about love across the barricades and all this kind of stuff. And I said, no, no, just tell me like, you know what it is. And they just, they just wrote almost like a poem that just said, you know, here's how I've, I've learned to understand your culture and you're, you've learned to understand mine and here's right. what we do. And we've been together for 40 some years, um, have a bunch of kids some grandkids, but their story was pretty amazing though. I mean, they fell in love and uh, decided to get married. And uh, the, the unionist said, you know, we won't give you any, any of our halls to get married in. And the IRA said, you get married in of ours, we'll blow it up. Wow. Um, so, so much so they actually went to, to um, Mozambique and um, South Africa and, and taught English and stuff for a bunch of years and then came back and were really active in the, the peace process. But, um, you know, that was, that was a, that was a really good one for me. I liked that one. It was a, uh, there was a couple iterations of it that, were, that I think were as beautiful, if not more, but that was, that was a big one. Yeah. Uh, Billy, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off before, buddy. Yeah, no, that's okay. I was just getting back to what, what you're saying, Mark, about, you know, trying to understand how people go from, you know, being just normal people to, you know, to, to doing things that, that, you know, sometimes are, are horrible or, or, you know, can be perceived as, as, as evil. Um, I, I think education is such an important part of, uh, you know, of our lives. And it it's just, it's so lacking, you know, in, in so many areas of, of our country, um, we just don't focus enough funding, enough attention, enough, you know, uh, we, we just don't give it um, the, the respect and, and um, you know, we don't give our teachers what they deserve. Um, it's, it just doesn't pay to be an educator these days. It's not worth it. And it's, you know, you can see we're suffering as a result. We just, we have, yep. we have people who, you know, young people who are, who are, you know, coming into the workforce who, who understand absolutely nothing about, um, you know, who came before them and, and, you know, what, who built this country and, and how we did it. And, and it's, you know, the, the, the lack of understanding, you know, the fear, I think of, of different people you know, or people who are perceived as different, you know, that person's trans. Well, I don't, I don't know. I've never seen a trans person. I don't know anything about that. I don't, I don't understand that. So, you know, what's my first reaction? Um, you know, maybe that's, you know, if, if you, if you don't uh, pursue, you know, uh, education, if you don't um, want to understand, if you don't have that knowledge, if, you know, if you don't want to, to, um, you know, if you don't have that curiosity to, you know, to pursue that and to, to try to understand other people, to try to understand different cultures and, and different, you know, different ways of life, things of that nature, then, you know, you're predisposed to, to being afraid of them. And, and, you know, as, as Yoda says, fear leads to hate. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's what is happening now. Um, it's just so important that we, you know, we really have to look at our education system and have to make major changes because we we will not be able to sustain the way that that it is today. We just won't. We're not going to have enough teachers. We're not going to have the, the funding that we need. Everything is going to end up eventually, you know, where the 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 kids who are getting the better educations are, you know, the wealthy and and the poor kids and the middle class kids are going to be forgotten about. And, and I think that's horrible. I think we, you know, we, we pay 
entertainers and athletes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year and and teachers get almost nothing and they're the ones that are doing such important work I, for me it's a, it's a it's a passion it's something that I, I care deeply about i just wonder what you think about that mark no yeah, yeah. No, i i couldn't agree more um you know there's a couple a lot of thoughts as you were talking there i mean i think um you know one of the things you know we i forget what our ranking is in the world but in terms of our our educational spending in terms of our educational attainment and everything else um you know, most prosperous country in the world and everything else um i think we're down in the 20s or 30s or something i mean it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not even close it's you know yeah. um there's also you know i think the idea that you know education is as become to be something as a burden um you know i've got to go through this before i can go on my life i mean think about our grandparents though or great-grandparents or others that we grew up with mm. you know god if you, had, if you had an education you had a world ahead of you, you had, you know sure. it's a fundamental shift in things yeah um, the other thing that you know I, I think is really interesting is um uh, the un um development program undp um did a big study a couple of years ago and they, they pulled in some of the best minds and learning and all sorts of stuff um to figure out, you know, what do we need going forward in this, this, you know, this new century, but, you know, beyond that. Um, the one thing they came out with is that we're, we're failing ourselves by providing, you know, you go to high school or college or wherever, and you get this narrow set of job skills that just prepare you to go in and, and work like a cog in a machine. Um, they said, if we don't invest and start including things like social emotional learning, um, you know, empathy, critical thinking, all that stuff, we're going to believe everything we're told. We're not going to look out for each other. We're not going to be, you know, good citizens. But on the bigger part, too, any of the innovation we have is going to is going to cease. You know, right. people like Steve Jobs and others. You know, you need that social emotional leadership to actually think about what's the next great thing. Right. And right. Um, and I think we're starting to see little bits of it. And then you know, last thing I'll say, Billy, um, you're absolutely right. And and I. And I, I I love sports as much as the two as the two of you. Um, maybe not as much as Sean, but just at least the two of you. And um, <laughs> th you know, there's there's some cool historical stuff um, that's kind of scary. But um, I read a book a couple of years ago, and they said one of the great turning points of most um, most empires was when they started doing things just to keep the the masses busy. So the Romans started building the Colosseums and all this sort of right. stuff, and they stopped promoting philosophy and history and literacy and learning and it was just to keep everybody happy and that, that almost always they said that's that's one of the defining moments of when, when, when an empire civilization takes a downturn and you know i'm thinking like the you know the ram stadium in la what was it, a billion and a half to build i mean my god like yeah, you know I, i'm not you know hey i'll watch the games i'll go to them i'm not i'm not being some some precious prima donna here but yeah maybe our priorities are a little out of whack yeah. Yep. Yep. I agree. Well, Mark, let's let's get into you know the north of Ireland. Um, you know, you're doing some great work there. Let, let's talk about the work you're doing with the youth there. Yeah, doing doing a lot of things. Um, and I've been doing a lot of things over the last oh, I don't know twenty years or so. Um, we do a lot of work with um, a group called Feroiga. It's um, they're they're kind of like if the uh, they're based in the Republic, but they do a lot of work in Northern Ireland. Uh, they're kind of the national uh, youth organization. So it's like if uh, 4-H and the United Way had a baby. That's kind of what they are. Um, but it's it's like one in three or one in four. Every Irish young person is a member, has been a member. And um, 
fantastic organization. Um, very good friend of ours, Sean Campbell is the uh, CEO and um, it's all focusing on, on multiple levels of youth development. It's, it's, you know, youth skills, social emotional stuff, but it's also youth driven. So they've been doing a lot of work in, in Northern Ireland as well. And you know, Sean, like, it's a funny thing. I've seen it over the last, well, since before and after the peace process. Um, you know, young people there, um, they're pretty much, their mindset and their way of dealing things, it's, it's not really about conflict anymore. It's, they realize they're both in the same boat. Uh, you know, the Northern Ireland economy is not great. Um, Brexit sold out everyone um, across right. the board. Um, your, your background had no basis in that. Um, and, and I think they're all in the same mind that there's there's limited opportunities. There's this thing that that is one of the commonalities they have. Um, but there's also, you know, as with young people, which is the coolest part about the job I have, is there's a sense of optimism. There's a sense of, of moving on from, you know, the, the baggage of the past. There's a sense of moving on to be creative and other things. And then and sure, there's still, you know, Northern Ireland is still an incredibly um, segregated society. Mm -hmm. Over the troubles, everybody of, of each persuasion moved into their own little clusters. So, I mean, you know, going back to the community stuff, we talked about interaction and stuff, you know, if you're Catholic, you probably don't have many Protestant neighbors. You might have some friends, you might have some other stuff. If you're Protestant, you probably don't have any next door neighbors. You know, it's, it's become very polarized in that way. Um, but, and then the other thing is their schools, you know, they're talking about schools and things. Uh, I mentioned Alan Smith um, and uh, um, Alan's whole work is around shared education. Um, but right now, believe it or not, 90% of all young people in Northern Ireland go to segregated schools, 90%. Wow. So how do you start developing and building connections? Right. You know, um, when, when you have almost no exposure to them until you're, until you're 18 or 20 or whatever, you know. Um, oh. But the good thing, you know, most of the fights I see tend to be over whether, you know, Glasgow beat, beat, uh, uh, beat Celtic or whatever, um, or uh, Rangers. Celtic um, beat Rangers, yeah. Yeah. Um, those are what the fights are about, not, right. not political ideology and stuff. That's pretty cool. Um, I wish we could get back to the point where, you know, we could fight over the, the Red Sox and the Yankees. We, we've lost. The <laughs> to do that. Um, yeah. Those were the good old days. So, you know, I think, I think on the positive side with young people, they're, they're very innovative and creative. And I think they also realize um, the uniqueness of place and the things you can build on. And, um, you know, you mentioned Northern Ireland, the people, and they think, oh, bombing, shooting, something else. No, no, they don't. They don't think Game of Thrones. They don't think right, right, exactly. You know, they don't think all oh, this like it's like an entertainment hub. Um, they don't. They don't think about these things. So I think working with them to, you know, be innovative, creative, uh, entrepreneurial, these kind of things. And uh, and again, they're, they're much much more happier to to work together than we think. People of different backgrounds and other stuff. Um, certainly, probably more so than their parents. Um, right. And that's interesting, Mark, because, you know, and we did a couple episodes on, on Ireland and, um, you know, the thing that you mentioned there that, that kind of hit me is, is before it was always, you know, had, you had the one community that was oppressed, the, the Catholic community was oppressed for years and years and years. And now you're talking about the, the economy as a whole is, is so bad that everybody's in the same boat. And I think that's how you could, you, you could reach young people. But let me ask you this. Do you think, in our lifetime, do you think we're ever going to see a united Ireland? And do you think that's a course that would, would 
kind of right the ship? Or do you think that's a course that that we don't think you don't think we're going to be able to to achieve in this this lifetime, our lifetime anyway? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's I think it's a really good question, and you know, as it's always been, a very complicated and complex question. Sure. Um, you know, I think if if we follow like the stuff we started with, like just the demographic shift, um, you know, yeah, eventually that would probably lead to enough votes to for a referendum to carry, but that's also assuming that, you know, 100% of Catholics, for example, would vote for it. And right. 100% of, of Protestants would vote against it. Right. Um, no, I think a lot of people, and I, I've talked to many, many people over the years of different backgrounds and stuff. And I, I know I know many, you know, people who would be from a nationalist Catholic background, you know, and say, you know, practice, it really doesn't matter to me one way or the other. Um, you know, it's a nice idea and everything else, but really, you know, my, my government pensions with the British government, my um, this, that, and the other, you know, day-to-day things doesn't really change much. Um, and I've talked to many people, you know, of, of loyalist and unionist backgrounds that said, you know, um, yeah, actually I could picture, um, picture being part of it. I might not be thrilled with the idea of it because uh, I can, I consider myself British. My family's been British, but you right. know, they really screwed us with Brexit and, you know, I can't tell you how many loyalists I know that have an Irish passport just for the simple sake that, you know, it's now much easier to travel to Spain for holidays. If I want to buy an apartment in Italy, I can do that. And I can't do that as a British citizen. Um, so, you know, I think there's those kind of weird complexities. Um, I think part of it will be economics too. Um, right. I think right now, you know, both, both Britain and Ireland are sort of, you know, their economies are doing fine, but they're kind of a little flat. So, it's not like people are losing all their money being part of the pound system and paying everything right. and, and think it's better to jump to Ireland. So I don't know. I think, you know, I think it's a really complicated thing. And I, and I also, and the last thing I'll say, I know I've met a lot of people on both sides. I mean, like saying size, but, but both communities, whatever you want to call it, um, right. that have said, you know, we, we lived through the troubles for 25 years, 30 years. Um, I, I don't care what you call us right now. I don't care what our passport is. Um, I just like that we're not in the midst of all that anymore. And hey, you know, my kids are growing up safe and happy. That's cool, you know. Um, yeah. So I so I don't know. I think it's going to be a very interesting thing. I mean, I think there's there's lots of talk that within the next you know five years or so there might be a call for a referendum. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's it's nearly as certain on either side um, as you would think. And I, either side of what politicians and others are saying. Um, I don't know. It's it's very. Um, do you think the six counties being independent of both uh, the Republic of Ireland and Britain is an option or no? Not sustainable? I don't know how you do that. I mean, it's, it's you know, right. it's, you know, people always kind of raise that and that sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know how that would work. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you'd have to have a new country with a new military with everything else. And you're only talking about two million people, you know, or a million and a half people. In sure. Um, and how do, you, how do you organize trade? It just, it just seems right, like right. you just, you know crazy what, what i what i would envision actually is like maybe a vote on it and people say okay yeah we're going to unite we're not going to do it for 40 years and then we all just learn to live with each other for a while and we all okay you know any of the you know i think that's probably wishful thinking too but um i don't know i mean there's there's, there's really strong cases for it um in terms of uh you know people kind of use the example of when, when the the two parts of germany united um, you know, the 90s, 
um, there is a lot of things that could be worked out. And it might actually be economically or uh, healthcare and stuff like that. Right. Better. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also the case, the other side of the case too, that, you know, being allied to, you know, allied to the, the, the British economic system and stuff might be more sustainable in the long term. But um, I think, you know, I think it could go either way. Um, but, I, but I also don't think people care that much. Okay. Honestly, which is crazy to think about. Wow. We've yeah. always talked about it forever. Um, yeah, there's certain people on both extremes that would say, oh, we must be one or the other. Um, the vast majority of people I find are in the middle or just saying, hey, as long as we're not killing ourselves and bombing ourselves and doing all these things, you know, it's all good. I, I believe what I believe. And that's, that's between me and my family. And we will be right back. DK's Corner, located on 802 East Lackawanna Avenue in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. Visit DK's Corner for hot and cold sandwiches, soups, salads, pizza, and delicious breakfast, including breakfast sandwiches, specialty coffees, and DK's Razzle Dazzle Flavor Shaken Espressos. And take it from me, the best cheese steaks around. Follow DK's Corner on Facebook and Instagram, or call them at 570 209 0278 to find out about their daily specials and catering. Check out DK's Corner, Oliphant's Little Hoagie Shop. And we thank DK's Corner for sponsoring That's Enough Out of You. That's DK's Corner in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Gracious Day Grains. Uh, Sean, you like to eat healthy, don't you? Always, buddy. I try to eat healthy as much as I can. Yeah, and there is nothing healthier than uh, what they call like farm to table, right? This so when you when you can get something right from the ground and and make it and then put it right on your table. Um, and Gracious Day Grains, they have a tremendous selection, it, and it's totally organic. Everything is, you know, they don't use any sort of herbicides or pesticides or anything like that. They have. Um, a bunch of different uh, different products on their website, Gracious Day Grain. So if you go to graciousdaymilling.com, uh, you, you'll find a, a bunch of great stuff there, Sean. Yeah, you will, Billy. And, and it's owned by Tom Maxey, who's a, who's a great guy from Virginia. Um, he's a truth seeker, just like uh, me and you, buddy. And uh, Tom's growing philosophy follows the wisdom of farmers of centuries past. And a quote from Tom is, if we practice the right rotations, we exclude the bugs and weeds without needing herbicides or pesticides. So, I mean, this is great, Billy. I mean, what he's doing is fantastic. There's cornbread mix. There's cornmeal, popcorn. He sells buckwheat pan. Sean, have you had buckwheat pancakes? Have no, ever- buddy. Oh my, they're delicious. I love buckwheat pancakes. And they, and and gracious uh, gracious day grain sells buckwheat pancakes. Just go to their website and and you know you'll be able to find all of this stuff there. You can order it right off the website. You can find out all about how they how they farm and, and their whole philosophy. Tom's philosophy is great stuff. It really is, Billy. And one of the things he does is he grinds small batches at, at very low temperatures, which retains the flavor and the freshness. Of course, and and it, I mean, it can't get any fresher than that. I mean, it's right, literally right from the ground. So again, go to graciousdaymilling.com and just you know take a look on there. You can order whatever you want, and and they'll they'll send it right to your door. Can't, I mean, again, it just it doesn't get any doesn't get any fresher than that, right? From Tom's farm to your door to your table. So absolutely, and eat healthy, eat healthy, and you'll feel better. 
I'm so I wish I could do that. I wish I could eat healthier, Sean. I'm, well, start with Tom's stuff, buddy. I, I'm going to. I'm going to order some of those buckwheat pancakes. I love. There making, you go. I'm going to try them too, Billy. Yeah, they're really good. All right, Gracious Day. We thank Gracious Day Grains for their sponsorship. Thank you. And one of the things you mentioned there, you know, when you talk about, you know, the unionists consider themselves British. I mean, that's that's part of the problem with colonialism, you know, because a lot of try to explain the situation to people over here in America that that, you know, they're not Irish heritage or whatever, and they just don't have an interest in it to, to try to explain to them that, you know, the Irish Catholic community, the, the Catholic community considers themselves Irish. And if I've been to the north of Ireland and you see in the communities, you see the, the Irish flag uh, hanging but then if you go into the unionist uh, communities, you'll see the Union Jack flag because oh. the unionists, you know, their ethnicity for the most part is is either from Scotland or Wales or England for the most part. And they consider themselves British. So they don't get into the Irish culture, you know, and the Irish consider them, the Catholics consider themselves Irish. So that's always I try to explain that to people. And all they see is, you know, Irish Protestants fighting Irish Catholics. If they don't understand the situation, they don't understand the evils of colonialism. And this has been 800 years of oppression. Um, and it's also interesting now that you're saying that a lot of the people there, you know, for all these years of, of combat, you know, it's 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 not that they're they, they just want it stopped and they don't want you know, it's not that, you know, it's not about United Ireland right now. It's, it's more about, you know, just stopping the violence. And do you think that's more of the youth movement? Like um, you talk you talk about in your work, you talked about loss of memory harm. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's a big part of it? Because a lot of these young people don't, you know, they've been born before the troubles, really. They don't understand the violence and, and they, they, you know, they don't have that hard line, you know, yeah. background. Yeah, no, no, I think, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a brilliant question, Sean. That's really, really, you know, absolutely spot on. Um, and, you know, going back to the previous thing, like, you know, there, there's some people who would say that, you know, the, the unionists and others are more Irish than the Irish themselves. They've taken on like the, you know, like, like most cultures that merge with each other, they brought right. on, they've, they've taken on the best of, of the Irish culture and the Irish have taken on some of the best of theirs. And like, yeah. Right. Um, and it's, you know, and again, it's a celebration of, of our backgrounds, our heritage, everything. Um, and I think the more we understand that and embrace that, it's a cool thing, but you, you're right with the young people. Um, this is something, and something I've seen in the Republic more than I've seen in the North. Um, I think in the North, People's parents, certainly, you know, grandparents, but certainly parents would remember what the troubles were like. You know, they, they, you know, sure. They, they remember very clearly what it was like, even if they weren't, you know, terribly affected, but they would remember. Um, so they probably hear that a lot from their parents, everything else, um, just in storytelling, everything else. Um, in the Republic, though, I, I, I've, I've seen it happen a few times and I've been really kind of shocked by it. Um, you know, it'd be at a, you know, a kind of nightclub or something like that, where there was a, you know, a lot of young people, you know, you know drinking, dancing, and partying and all stuff. Um, and then some song would come on, not a rebel song, not in, you know, but there'd right. be, there'd be chances like up the raw, um, out of nowhere. And people would start jumping in without, I think, even knowing what they were screaming, just sort of, you know, right. And I think the fact that that became sort of, uh, um, that became the case. is really scary. The, the other thing is I think there's there's been a tendency like all of us have to to look back at previous times with with rose colored glasses and romanticize it 
And, uh, you know, as we were, as Brexit was getting progressively messier and messier, we were doing some work with, uh, with the Irish government, the Northern Ireland government, uh, Home Office, a bunch of different players. And, you know, one of the biggest concerns was that, you know, if, if because of Brexit, they put up a hard border, all of a sudden that violates the, the peace process and everything else, that young people would just flood to it because they, they, they saw that as potentially like their patriotic duty and other things. Um, and that's a different thing. And then I think the fact that they haven't seen, they don't know what it looks like for a bombing to go off. They don't know what it looks like um, for somebody just to get on a normal bus and have someone jump on the bus and shoot at you. Um, they don't know that. So I, that's one of my concerns is that that's sort of been, that the troubles have sort of been romanticized or sort of whitewashed over. And um, I think most people just sort of ignore it, but I've seen enough to make me worried. Let me, let me ask you this, Mark, because I, I thought about this for a while. Um, one of the things that that I always thought about is the the, the unionist community, they, they showed such a loyalty to, to Britain over the years. And to me, the British government never showed that loyalty back. Like, to me, it's like it's almost like it's their Vietnam. Like, I think if they had a choice to get out, they would get out. And and do you think a lot of the um, unionists, uh, the, the Protestant community are unhappy with, with the, the British government and and that's a chance maybe to to unite the country more and and develop peace through that because i i just I, you know i just see like the, the the way the interviews that i've seen with with some of the the protestant community over there they just they're not happy with the british government no i, I think um i think a lot of people aren't happy with the british government um well but, that's true i mean they know, haven't yeah, given but, people a reason to be happy yeah but i think i think in terms of um of the unionist committee or uh, community yeah i think they um I think they were shortchanged on a lot of things, um, historically and, and recently. Um, you know, again, going back to Brexit, even going back, you know, throughout the 60s, 70s and stuff, um, you know, the parliament probably had lots of use for, you know, the DUP and the UUP and others to the extent that they were useful to them in terms of votes and other stuff. I don't think there was a real clear allegiance, things like that. Um, and also, too, I mean, it's, you know, geographically, it's easier to get your head around you know, Wales, Scotland, England, and everybody just being next door to each other. Um, Ireland, and especially Northern Ireland, were kind of like outposts almost. They were, they were geographically disconnected, and um, I think that led to some stuff. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, think the, the, I think the unions have a lot of ground to be dramatically upset with what the, the cards they've been dealt and, and what they were promised and didn't get. Um, in terms of things. And I'm not talking, you know, I'm not talking preferential treatment. I'm just talking, you know, vote this way and your, your, your society will get, you know, government healthcare. And so, you know, like you don't have to go, you don't have to go into the big ideological things. Just go into the, the, the nuts and bolts. Of, of well, Mark, we know, we know, you know, over the years, there's no doubt that, that they, that community, the Protestant community, have has gotten preferential treatment. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, as far as the police forces was always, you know, a very high percentage of uh, unionist Protestant. Um, is that still um, true to this day, or has that changed? No, as that's far as Yeah, and I think, you know, I think even over the last, you know, since the, the end of World War II even, I think that's that's just dramatically kind of shifted away. Um, I think, you know, I couldn't give you the exact numbers right now, but I'm sure we can look them up. Um, you know, the police force in Northern Ireland, I know, you know, a large chunk of it now is Catholic, if, if not, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm not going to give give numbers or make them up, but uh, it's nothing okay. like that. Um, but also with the economy changed dramatically, you know, the, the shipyards in Belfast where they built the Titanic and everything else. Got right. it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a museum now, but that was that was one of the biggest industries. Um, right. Similar things in in dairy and that, that part of the country. Um, you know, major major industrial things that are gone. Um, and yeah, I mean, historically, sure, there was there was there was different opportunities given to different people. Um, I think those days that's pretty few and far between now. I think really the reality is that kind of everybody's in the same boat, um, and that's not because Catholics have taken more of the jobs or, um, you know, anything else. It's just that, that things have changed so dramatically. Um, you know, they've, they've lost major industry. They've lost other things. And, uh, and also too, you know, think about like, you know, throughout the, throughout the troubles with even, even up until now, the amount of people that have immigrated to, to England or Scotland, massive, absolutely massive. Right. So, I mean, that's, that changes the whole dynamic of the place and who goes for what jobs and what jobs are available and everything else. But, um, you know, no, I think it's, I think it's, it's a much more, much more kind of equal society right now. And talk a little bit about your research, you know, on a, on a return, a possible return to violence and how do you prevent that or at least limit it on a, you know, on a scale um, I know we talked a little bit about that, but let's get into some specifics about, you know, the work you do. How do, how do you, how do we prevent that? No, it's a great question. And, you know, I think there's been kind of ebbs and flows of things over the last, you know, well, since the peace process, there's been little things, you know, um, I hate to sound like I'm putting all the, all the blame and everything on, on Brexit. I'm not, but that was one of those things where it wasn't really thought out. Well, it was more of a gimmick that went wrong. Um, terms of people voting for it and other stuff and a whole bunch of things that were you know not thought through were had to be decided quick and those were the kind of things i think that we were most concerned that would could pull people back into violence uh things that would actually kind of overturn the good friday agreement um or or violate key parts of it um you know people today don't know what it was like to go across the border back in the day checkpoints and everything else um it's gone but if all of a sudden now, you know, the, you know, the, the British, um, you know, the UK is not part of, or not allied, allied anymore with, with the European Union, well, then we have to have something so you can't just bring everything across the border. Um, you need a border. How do you do that? Okay, we have to put a border in place. Well, that violates the Good Friday Agreement. You know, we put it out at sea, still border. So there's all these like weird things like with Brexit and with certain other things over the years that just, they could have been the spark to something. And I think if, you know, they, I think if they had put up hard borders with Brexit, it's not a societal shift, but I think it just takes one person to blow up a, you know, a border crossing. Um, and for young people, you know, and think, think again, like this, so we're talking about, you know, young people in Northern Ireland, um, they're both in the same position. Um, maybe struggling for jobs or other things. Um, you know, we do know the people who are, you know, have more opportunities to go elsewhere, more opportunities for a job, more, more stability, other things, social economic stuff, uh, tend not to get pulled into extremism. If, uh, you know, if you're in that situation where you don't have those things, right? somebody blows up a border station and says, come on, you're part of the, and then plays into all the romanticism and everything else. 
says you're part of the, the movement. Here we are. Let's go. You can see how people would be pulled in. Right. Um, so I think it's I think part of it is is kind of shaping some of the narrative out there. Um, to look at we're, we're doing our best to rebuild this place. And we're doing pretty good actually. Um, now there's going to be hiccups all the time. There's going to be political things. There's going to be all sorts of stuff that that are messy and, and damaging. But there's ways we can work through those. And, and and to be fair, I think you know all sides came together and really kind of came up with a very clean way to to deal with you know. Brexit and trade and all that sort of stuff. Right. Put it they, they actually came together, put their heads together, and said, "Okay, this will work. Cool. Okay, let's do this." I think that you know, reinstilling that kind of stuff, re, re, you know, reinvigorating that kind of stuff is key. Um, but yeah, I think that's you know, it, it's all it's it's one of those things. I think it's not just something here. I mean, you see it elsewhere in the world. And you know, and Mark, you know it's it's interesting. You, you mentioned that uh, kids today don't don't understand the you know the uh, what it's like to <clears throat> to go through. A border crossing. Um, my uh, my wife, her, her family, when she was young, they had exchange students from Ireland, mm-hmm. and um, they uh, occasionally would would you know drive to to go see relatives in New Jersey and New York, and they took the they took the, these kids um, a couple times, and you know the kids were were amazed that there was no stop. You know there was they didn't have to stop at the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey, they weren't going to get searched. They weren't, you know, no one was going to question them and ask them what they were doing and why they were going there. And, and, you know, it's, it, it's something I think that, you know, with all the differences we do have in our country, it's still one of those freedoms that we have that, you know, we, maybe we take that for granted. You know? yeah. we, we can go anywhere we want to go really. And, and nobody's going to stop you. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, except for the TSA, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, other than that, I think, I think we, you know, we, we have it pretty good and, and, you know, it's just stuff, uh, that again, I think we, we take that for granted and it's, it's things that like that, that, you know, we, that happen in other countries that don't happen here. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. A lot of good stories like that from, you know, from those kids, those, uh, you know, those exchange students. Yeah. Well, you know, like, and, and I think it's part of the reason why, like, you know, Brexit was such a disappointment and hassle and everything else. You know, if you if if you're from Dublin and you've got an EU, you know, you're, you're a member of the EU, you can drive from France to Germany to it's you know, there's there's no hassle. Um, if you don't have that EU passport or British passport, yeah, you got to go through customs at every single stop. And like, yeah, think about like the the impacts of that over the long term. But but especially like you know, you're right after like in the troubles and everything else. I mean, it was, you know. This was serious business uh, going through a border crossing. It was, it was sure. scary stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then Sean, you, uh, you know, you had asked me um, what, uh, if I was going to write an empathy essay. Yeah. What would I write it about? It, it occurred to me as the simplest answer. You know, my son, my son has dyslexia. Um, I think kids with, with learning disabilities, you know, that's what I, that's what I would write about. I, these are kids that are, they're just, they're, they're just kids. They're just like every, every other kid. Except they need a little bit, you know, they need a little bit of help when it comes to to reading or, you know, or learning or, you know, uh, understanding things. And, you know, it's something that, like I said, my son has it. My, my mom works with kids uh, who, who have dyslexia and, you know, they don't want sympathy. They don't want, you know, they don't want anybody to to uh, feel sorry for them. 
they just, you know, they need you to understand that it maybe it takes them a little bit longer. Their brain works a little bit differently when it comes to reading. And it's not something that they can cure. It's not something there's a cure for. They just have to learn how to adjust to that and how to, you know, live their lives knowing that they see things a little bit differently than everybody else, literally <laughs> see things differently huh? than, than everybody else. And they have to, their brain has to adjust uh, and may take a little bit extra time. But I think that's, Sean, that's, that's the the direction I would go. Good one, Belly. That's good. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So Mark, I haven't, I haven't been um, to Belfast and Derry in probably over 10 years. Would okay. I recognize it today or how much has it changed in, in that period? Well, you definitely recognize it because both are such kind of historic cities and then they're right. layout and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm always amazed, like, you know, and they've been gone quite a while, thankfully. But, you know, you, if you go to Belfast, the city center, um, you know, there's the, the, the beautiful government building and courthouse and everything's gorgeous, you know, architecture and stuff. Uh, forever, that was surrounded by blast walls and barricades. Right. Um, those are gone, you know, gone. Um, right. You know, places like the Europa Hotel, which is the most bombed hotel in Europe, um, you know, no sign of, of any kind of security. Right. Um, you would still see the Peace Wall, which is okay. scary, creepy a bit. Mm -hmm. um, that's still there. Um, you know, as you go into the, the different neighborhoods, um, the one thing I've noticed is they've all, they've all always been really um, active in doing murals on the side of buildings. Right. And the one thing I've noticed that I think is really cool is, you know, during the Troubles, right after the Troubles, almost all the murals were like a statement. They yes. were, they were, uh, you know, they're about motivating the public. They're about making a statement. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of them now are like historical representations, maybe of people that were, that were, um, you know, local heroes on either side or whatever, the, you know, their story is on there or like historical events or other things, but they're not nearly like they used to be in your face. Like, all right, you ready to pick a fight? Okay. Here's the, here's the murals for now it's very, and, I, and that's, I've seen that in Derry, I've seen that elsewhere. Um, so I think those kind of things are important. I think that's a subtle messaging that the more we're exposed to it, the more we, we start saying us and them and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, certainly as you go to Derry, you go up around the city walls and, and elsewhere, you know, the, the days of watchtowers and all the things that used to be there are gone, um, which is nice. Um, you know, it's, it's been a, quite a long while actually since you would have seen it, but you don't see patrols anymore, things like that. Um, okay. So it's you know there's there's a lot of things um, that, that makes it look like you're just going to another part of you know especially if you're in Derry it's like going to another part of Ireland um, you know if you're if you're in Belfast the architecture and stuff is a little more like you know Liverpool or or, you know, or Reading or London so you feel like you're kind of in a you know maybe more in the English countryside or whatever but um, you know um, I think that's, those are kind of big dramatic differences um, I also tend to see one of the you talking about demographics before, um, um, especially Belfast, but, but Derry as well. Um, they're becoming much more uh, diverse. So you're, so you're seeing people from different parts of the world. Um, you're okay. seeing different cultures and other things popping up in terms of food and music and other stuff. So, you know, you wouldn't have seen that before as well. I think that's a, a cool side of a, uh, you know, of a growing kind of thriving society. Right. And um, we've kept you a long time, Mark. This has yeah. been fantastic. Um, but I have I have one question. This this is going to be an interesting one. So let's get back to empathy here. Okay. And and 
you know me pretty well and and you know i i have i'm you know irish heritage and and my you know my dad and um you know i have i still have a lot of hard feelings uh, towards the british um you know for for what's been done in ireland and in the british government and and 800 years of oppression and also you know we, on this podcast we talk a lot about jfk and he had a disdain for colonialism too and we talk a lot about what the british did in africa and in other places around the world with colonialism so what do you say to me how do i deal with those feelings and how do i empathize with with, with the british and and more specifically the british government because you know i'm not talking about the i've got friends from england and stuff but but i'm talking about the british government how do how do i deal with that yeah that's a good question you know you're right i mean i think I think a lot of our governments are scandalous and, and complete well, scandalous. No, including this government. Well, of course. You know, and I think we do a lot of colonialism, just call it a different thing in a different place. Exactly. Imperialism, um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, how to get past that? I mean, I think part of it is, and, and you're saying it already, is, you know, I'm talking about the government here. I'm talking about, you know, how many tens of millions of people live in the UK? Okay. Right. You know, a thousandth of one percent are in government running the place. Like, not, not some conspiracy theory, right? But you know what I mean. Like, no, you're right. Small elite class, kind of like same could be said. Same here. here. Um, and I think you know, I through the work I've been doing in Northern Ireland and stuff, I think I've gotten a much. I've been really fortunate. I got a much deeper understanding of a lot of things. Um, you know, I've gotten to hear people's stories of things, and not right. sad, the stories of 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 pride of 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 other things. And uh, um, that's cool. I think the more we can embrace that, I think you know, you know, much as we were talking about during the peace process and everything else, we got more in common than we don't. Um, you know, governments are going to do what they're what they're going to do. I think it's up to to citizens to take a fight. You know, pick a fight um, in a good way. Um, right. You know, and and keep them accountable and that sort of thing. And I think you know, I think a lot of the events over the last, you know. 10 years or so, um, the pandemic, Brexit, all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I, th I think a lot of, of people in Britain are very, um, see a lot more protests of people coming out trying to hold the government accountable for things like healthcare and things like right. jobs and, and how you're going to take care of the old and the sick and, 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 you know, the human conditions we have to face. Um, and I think all of those that I've seen have, have come from a place of, uh, you know, love, compassion, whatever else, just for their fellow citizens families and other things not right. about who's taken what from what and all this kind of stuff we heard over the years right. um and i think you know i think you know you mentioned you got friends from england and stuff like that I think the more we can you know be around people the more we realize okay this this certainly is governments we're not agreeing that this isn't people um and that's you know right. that's a big that's a big thing um, big thing so and we I think do on know, this podcast, Mark, we talk a lot of negativity on the U.S. government. That's yeah, probably ninety well, percent of our episodes, right, Dylan? <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> Absolutely, no, I think there's, you know, we we got no room to be pointing fingers elsewhere. Oh um, no, oh no, you know. And I think, um, but again, I think keep, you know, I, I keep coming back to the idea that, you know, most most of my life in my world is, you know, small amount of people I see every day and hang out in the, you know, the, you know. My wife, my friends, people I see at my favorite pub, uh, whatever. I mean, it's you know, right. it's it's. I don't want to get caught up in the craziness of pointing fingers all over the world. I certainly think I'll be I'll be right at the forefront of disagreeing with, um, sure, of, of things, and I'll, I'll certainly be vocal about those, and I'll certainly spend money and protest and whatever else. But you know, most of my life's right here, and uh, and it's around people that are, you know, 
that I, that I care about the people in the place and we'll do good things together. Well, you're doing great work, Mark. Uh, keep it up. I mean, just uh, tremendous work, you know, and, and um, it's just impressive stuff. And, you know, let, let's, you know, wrap it up. Is there anything, you know, that you we haven't discussed that you want to you want to end this with? Anything you want to go over? No, I think just, you know, I mean, I mean, thank you guys. It's amazing, amazing job you're doing. Amazing, important work you're doing. And thanks for, for having me be part of it. Um, well, you know, we'd love to have you back, buddy. You anytime. Back? Hey, you know. Yeah. I'm never doing anything on Sundays. Come and get me. Uh, uh, but I would just, you know, kind of keep in mind like this idea of, you know, this this idea of empathy and showing it out. Again, it's not some touchy feely giving out hugs and kisses. Um, right. What I would say is, is, and it takes effort to practice it. And uh, but it's a really important thing for us as as individuals. And uh, just keep trying to practice it before you, you know, somebody cuts you off on the road, and the first thing you want to do is go strangle them. Know, kind of put yourself in their head like are they running to the hospital are they doing whatever just keep like right what could they possibly be doing these things and if we can we can understand people a little more now maybe give each other a break things will be better so, excellent yeah. points all right guys thanks man. all for right having. all right thank mark. you mark thank you so much hey my pleasure talk to you soon all, all right, right buddy bye, bye. That's Enough Out of You podcast is executive produced and written by Bill Rader and Sean Kane and edited by Bill Rader. The That's Enough Out of You podcast and logo are exclusive property of Bags of Chicken, LLC. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or accounts of this podcast without the express written consent of Bags of Chicken, LLC is prohibited. So don't even try it.